50% of women fall in between standard cup sizes. So Third Love invented half cup sizing. And it is something that my dog Exley is very, very excited about. What he wants me to tell you is that shoes have half sizes. So why shouldn't bras? In fact, I am wearing a Third Love half size bra right now. They are tailored to both the size and shape of your things that need to be held in a bra, and they come in exclusive half cup sizes. Armed with measurements of millions of women, Third Love scrapped the standard bra cup size molds and developed their own. These bras are designed to fit real women. Just answer a few simple questions to find your perfect fit. It takes less than a minute. And when it comes to a perfect fit, size and shape are both important. Third Love's helped you identify your breast shape and find styles that fit your body. They have 60 sizes from AA through G and all those half sizes in between. They have straps that won't slip, ultra soft smoothing fabrics, and lightweight memory foam cups. And the one I'm wearing right now happens to be a lace back razor back. It's sort of meant to show, which is good because it is hot today. And I wore a very strappy top and I don't mind having the strap show because they're beautiful. Third Love guarantees a perfect fit. Returns and exchanges are always free and easy. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they're offering my listeners 15% off their first order. So go to thirdlove.com slash friends right now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash friends for 15% off today. Hi. I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These, where we talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us. Today's guest is feminist theologian Diana Butler Bass, here to talk about her new book, Gratitude, The Transformative Power of Giving Thanks. Diana wrote this book during the first year of the Trump administration. As a liberal, progressive, self-identified Christian feminist, It was not easy, but I think in general, gratitude, real gratitude isn't easy. It's something I think about a lot. It's a cornerstone of my faith. It's central to my recovery. And I try to practice gratitude every day, whether or not I'm actually feeling it. Because as she and I discuss, gratitude is an action as much as it is a feeling. Now we do talk about faith a lot, And so I want anyone out there who feels like they have suffered at the hands of uh, organized religion or Christianity specifically, I want you to know that we talk about that. We talk about the ways that white Christians in particular have weaponized gratitude. And we talk about the place of gratitude in how one thinks about whiteness. And I'll also do a little trigger warning. I get a little emotional. And Diana stays very real. So please enjoy this conversation with Diana Butler-Bass. I'll be back. Diana Butler-Bass, welcome. It is great to be with you in person. In person. We've spoken many times. We have. Uh, I'm going to read your introduction. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Diana Butler-Bass is the award-winning author of 10 books on American religion, including Grounded, Christianity After Religion, Christianity for the Rest of Us, and A People's History of Christianity. She holds a PhD in Religious Studies from Duke. 
Well, I guess we can still talk. I guess I like you enough. (laughs) Some people do hold that against me. (laughs) I try to be very low key about my basketball allegiances. Yes, I would. I in this particular room right now, I would recommend that. (laughs) And we're here to talk about. Well, we're going to talk about a lot of things, I think. Um, But grateful, uh, which is the book that came out recently, and that you wound up working on during the 2016 election or after the 2016 election. I started it during the 2016 election, and I actually put it put it down and said, I can't do this. It's There's too much going on. And I remember one day in late summer when I literally said, I'll pick it up again after November 9th when everything goes back to normal. And on November 9th, nothing went back to normal and everything got worse. And I had a contract to write a book on gratitude. I had no idea what I was going to do. It is an amazing time to come out with a book on gratitude, especially one that's targeted not at uh, the Christian right. You know? Correct. I mean, they are totally grateful. <laughs> <laughs> like they've got they've got it covered. They they feel pretty good about the way things are going and Maybe again, another topic of conversation, Uh, but those of us that identify as Christian and as progressive, I mean, it it feels like a time, and I know personally how important it is to practice gratitude, but it is one of the hardest times, you know, that that it feels really difficult. If if you're a white, you know, cis, like I can can put all the the adjectives on it. Um, And maybe that's an example of why I should be grateful. Yeah, I was very aware, in part, you know, the political environment, because it was it was all around. It was unavoidable. And I did wind up writing the first draft of the book during the first 100 days Mm. that Trump was president because I had put it off. And then when I got to the end of 2017, uh, I think that probably from the election until roughly right after Christmas, I spent most of those weeks crying. Mm-hmm. And also, I, I live right outside of Washington, D.C. So most of the people on my street work for the federal government. It's a kind of a modest Fairfax County middle class neighborhood. And so my neighbors work for EPA and the Ag Department and are mostly naval. There's some naval officers on the street or work for the Smithsonian. And everyone on my street was completely confused. So we wound up sort of holding each other's hands. Uh, for the six weeks immediately following the election. But then by January, I had to get this project done. I was under contract. And I'm a very responsible person in these ways. So I had to get up every morning, read the Washington Post, look at Twitter, and then go into my office for five to six hours and write a book on gratitude. It was It, it, it may well have been the world's most uh, provocative gratitude intervention ever (laughs) Mm -hmm. because I tried to get out of it too. I literally called my publisher. I said, can I write another on another topic? Really? Yeah. And I said, what's gratitude going to have to do with any of this? And they said one of the things to me that was one of the wisest things that um, they possibly could have said. My editor looked at me and just, she said, we, we talked about this topic and we realized that it was the one that we really wanted you to write on. And we're going to trust that. Mm. We're going to trust our intuition. We're going to trust that this was a topic you wanted to explore. 
And let's just go with it because we don't know where this is all going to be in another year. So, right. I think that's one of the many ways that gratitude is bound up with faith because that's what that sounds like to me. Yeah. It sounds like somebody had faith in you, which required you to have some faith. It did. And also the the way that I write, this is my 10th book and um, all of my previous projects, I, I'm the kind of writer that really has to feel what I'm writing about. I can't just have an assigned topic and write on spec, but there has to be a deep connection between my own spiritual life, my own intellectual growth, and this sense of authenticity, you know, out of my words. And so what I, I did for those hundred days was uh, I, I would literally wake up, I'd see all that stuff, and then I would say to myself, okay, what is one thing that I'm grateful for today? And that's how I would start the day. And sometimes it was very small, being grateful for my dog. Uh, Rowan is a wonderful little companion. Or being grateful for my beautiful daughter or that the sun was shining. Something very simple. Um, And other days it was more like, oh, I'm so thankful that the world hasn't blown up yet. (laughs) (laughs) So there would be some political aspect to it. And then I'd go in my office and I would do that writing. and. What I learned from that is that when you can say thank you for one thing, eventually one thing grows to two and two to three and three Mm -hmm. to four. And and that gratitude winds up being like a what I would call a spiritual multiplication. It's sort of not really problem. Force multiplier. Yeah. Spiritual force multiplier. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. And uh, so eventually gratitude began to overtake my own set of fears and anxieties regarding the news, which which I really needed. I think that's a great example of something that I've come to believe in my own spiritual journey, which is that most of the words that we use around faith, things like hope and gratitude, even uh, faith itself, love, acceptance, those words seem like they are about feelings, but they're really about actions. They're really about a practice mm-hmm. and not in ne- doing it even when you don't feel it. You know, I mean, I, uh, I remember during the election, we'll try not to turn this into like a whole like nostalgia, <laughs> like sepia tone, um, you know, re- reconstruction of 2016. But uh, Hillary Clinton was asked a question about prayer and she kind of was like really perfunctory about it. I don't know if you remember this. Mm. Um, she was like, well, I have these set prayers and I, you know, I have a, devotion and there was a little bit of like because evangelicals are kind of anti that they really feel like the spirit should move you and you need to be like totally the charismatic exclamations of faith and as someone in a 12-step program i am so there with just having my set prayers that i do whether or not i feel it because those are the times that i usually actually really need to pray and it's interesting to me that gratitude can be exercised in that same way yeah, that's one of the things I learned in this project, because even though I'm a, a progressive Episcopalian and I I like ritual prayers yeah. as part of my tradition, um, I have always had this very effusive spiritual side. And so I, I feel things very deeply and my prayers are about feelings often. And I just said that, you know, I had to feel what mm-hmm. I'm writing about. So when it came to gratitude, I had thought of it primarily as a feeling. 
And I think that many Americans actually do have that when somebody asks you to define gratitude. People will usually say, oh, I felt thankful when. Mm -hmm. So we look at it as a feeling. And it is a feeling. And I do talk about that in the book. It's a very important feeling. But it has to become more because feelings can come and go. And well, feelings, facts aren't feelings. And I believe there's some, there's a certain segment of the population that had been saying, fuck your feelings for a while, which I'm actually on board with. I actually do feel like I feel. I think that maybe we do as a culture pay a little bit too much attention to feelings um, and instead need to work on practices. Yeah. And that's what most gratitude books help us do is that they take those feelings, which are random and can be trustworthy or untrustworthy. You know, feelings are funny things. Um, they Not only do they come or go, but they can mislead us. Again, in the rooms, we often say feelings aren't facts. Yes, there you go. Yeah. And so then how do you move from gratitude just as a feeling about somebody giving you a gift or something nice happening to you to a more sustained way of life? And that's where those practices come in. And that's basically what happened to me during those first 100 days is that I said, okay, I want this to be authentic. I'm not just writing a book about gratitude. I want to live this and see if it really does have the power that other writers and psychologists and lots of medical research says it, ha says it has. And, and I would get up. I would do those gratitude interventions, those little gratitude practices, little prayers in the morning. And then I would go in my office and I was literally, like I said, forced to mm -hmm. think about it, to write about it for five to six hours a day, which was an extraordinary amount of gratitude in the first 100 days of Donald Trump. Really practicing, really just exercising that spiritual muscle. I wonder if you could talk about how this book is different from other books about that, that presume to be about gratitude, because there is a little bit, it's kind of parallel to the mindfulness kind of trend, this idea that we have that... Um, Gratitude is important. People know that. There's lots of studies that show that people who are grateful uh, tend to deal better with life. Um, but I think most of the time in sort of the self-help category, what you get is simple instruction, right? You just get, yes, you should do this. <laughs> you should totally <laughs> practice gratitude. What, what did your reflection, how did it go deeper than that? Um, on a personal level, I needed that. You know, mm -hmm. I needed that sort of mindful piece and some of those instructions, things like keeping a journal or morning gratitude exercises. I have a little river rock near my bed that just has the word gratitude on it. And so that's the last word I see at night. It's the first word I see in the morning. So all of that stuff that is in the, the self-help genre, I appreciated. I learned from it. And I do incorporate uh, some of that into my own book. And the place where it's different is my husband on the, the 100th day, actually, when it accidentally wound up being the day that I sent the manuscript to the, to the publisher. And we were sitting at dinner and the news was on and it was all about the 100th day of Donald Trump. My husband looks at me and he said, you know, writing this book over the last 100 days, it's really saved you. And I realized he was right by doing those practices Somehow I had become more resilient, that I was more grounded, that my anger level had receded. So, so the self-help part of it, I discovered um, actually 
was very beneficial. The place where my work is different is that at the very beginning of the project, two surveys came across my desk in the same week. And this became a significant frame for me thinking about these issues. And the first survey was from Pew Research, and it was a simple question. Have you in the last week felt a strong sense of gratitude? And so that's your our feelings question. And, um, you know, it was a simple thing to ask people. And 78% of Americans said yes. I couldn't even believe the number. <laughs> I, said, I said, that's... That's incredibly high. You can rarely get more than 65% of people to agree on anything. And so here was eight out of 10 Americans said they felt strongly grateful. My first thought was, uh oh, I'm not sure I'm one of those people. (laughs) Who will buy your book? Jeez. Everyone's already feeling great, but, 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 but. There you go. And uh, so I saw that. And then uh, I knew just enough about gratitude that were those things that you were saying that gratitude is good for us. I, you know, I've, I've watched Oprah. I love Oprah like everybody else does. So I knew it was, you know, good for our health outcomes. It reduces stress, all those kinds of things. Three days later, this, and this was in the fall of, uh, fall of uh, 2015, so I was at the very beginning of thinking about this project. Um, I got a survey from Public Religion Research, and they had just completed a, a whole study on the emotional complexity of the American electorate going into the 2016 election. And what they found is that Americans were angrier less hopeful, more mistrustful, and divided than what they could ever find any comparison points for in their survey research. And so here are these two surveys in November 2015 sitting on my desk, one saying, oh, yeah, we feel grateful, and the other one saying that we were fearful, angry, anxious, and just pretty much every negative emotion you could think about. That becomes the frame where my book becomes different because... We can talk about gratitude on an individual level, which is I'm pretty sure when, you know, people are asked, did you feel grateful this last week? Yeah, hey, 80% of us say yes. Mm -hmm. But part of gratitude is that it strengthens our social ties, that it actually creates relationships between people. It gives us a new kind of connectedness to one another and to the world that we live in. And it was very clear that however we were interpreting gratitude on a personal level so that we'd say we felt it from the Pew survey, it had not transferred over into our communal and our political lives. And so what I do as I basically in this book do a gratitude intervention on our social and cultural life. And so it's not just about us as individuals, but what does it look like when we talk about living gratefully together? So my husband said that this is actually a political book disguised as a self-help book. I love that distinction. And it it seems like an important one to make if uh, we want to return to what I gestured at in the beginning of our conversation, which is that it's an easy time to be grateful if you're a white evangelical conservative Christian. And one might argue it's also somewhat easy to be grateful if you are a, a white non-conservative straight, cis, evangelical Christian. And a lot of people might say, so 
you know, yeah, you have it. What you think things are hard now? Of course, you should be grateful. Like, look at look at what's happening, you know, to to the immigrants in our country. Look at what's happened to Black people in our country. Yeah, I was really aware of that while I was writing the book, and um, there were days. Not only did I want to put the project down because I felt some level of despair because of the elections, um, but I was feeling a lot of pain watching things like Black Lives Matter and the shooting of young black men in American streets. And that was, that was taking, that, that was cutting my heart out of my body. I thought that was so horrible. So while I was at the early stages of this project, I realized the last thing that the world needed was one more gratitude book by a privileged white lady. So I thought, what am I going to do in, that, in the process of writing this book so there's there is actually quite a bit in the book about suffering and loss because people can look at my life, you know, from the outside and I'm an author and yes, I'm straight and I am a I'm a white woman and all of those things uh do bring a certain amount of privilege and I'm very aware of that. Uh but there are other dimensions to all of our lives as well where violence is done to us, where we have experienced injustice or being a victim. And so in Grateful, I tell several stories in which I take myself out of a place of privilege and tell a story about suffering in my own life because I wanted to be at the table with everybody who has experienced a sense of injustice or victimhood and finds gratitude dif- difficult. Um, so there is in the book a story, a Me Too story. Um, of when I was 14 years old and abused by a relative, my uncle. And there's also a story about losing my very first ever job, mm-hmm. something that I did not deserve, shouldn't have happened to me, and uh, being cast back on my own resources when I was 31 years old, trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life after just having graduated and having huge amounts of student debt on on my back. So the truth is, most of us are brushing our teeth wrong, not for long enough, and we forget to change our brushes on time. It's one of those things. Don't you hate to be told you've been doing it wrong all along, but you have been. How do you know how to brush your teeth? It's not like you can get a lesson, except you kind of have a lesson in the toothbrush when it comes to Quip. Quip is an electric toothbrush that's a fraction of the cost of bulkier brushes while still packing just the right amount of vibrations to help clean your teeth. They have a built-in timer to help you clean for the dentist-recommended two minutes with guiding pulses that remind you of when to switch sides. Don't you wish everything had a guiding pulse reminding you when to switch sides? It'd probably come in handy in Congress. Next, Quip subscription plans are for your health, not just for convenience. They deliver new brushed heads on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for $5, including free shipping worldwide. Quip also comes with a mount that suctions right to your mirror and unsticks to use as a cover for hygienic travel wherever you take your teeth. And finally, everyone loves Quip. They're on Oprah's O-List, named one of Time's Best Inventions, and is the first subscription electric toothbrush accepted by the American Dental Association. They are also backed by a network of over 20,000 dentists and hygienists and hundreds of thousands of happy brushers use Quip every day. Get your free refill pack at getquip.com slash friends. That is G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash friends. 
Journalist Mehdi Hassan is known around the world for his televised takedowns of presidents and prime ministers. He hosts Upfront on Al Jazeera and is a columnist for The Intercept. And in his new podcast, Deconstructed, Mehdi unpacks a game-changing news event of the week while challenging the conventional wisdom in a tight 30-minute package, a little quicker than what we do here. He starts his show with his take on one topic and what the mainstream news is getting wrong or what context is being missed. And then he goes into a deep analysis and conversation with his guest or guests of the week. And get this, his guests have included Judd Apatow, Bernie Sanders, and Hassan Minhaj. So he kind of covers the gamut, I would say, in terms of who you might be expecting. Um, It's everyone from comedians to politicians to, for instance, Stefan Clark's fiance. So you're going to hear from a lot of different people. And the show has covered such topics as the violence in Gaza from the perspective of Israeli activists against the occupation and, of course, police shootings, as through the eyes of the fiancé of Stephon Clark. Also, he's talked about the dangers of John Bolton with former diplomats. As a Brit and a Muslim, an immigrant based in Donald Trump's Washington, D.C., Mehdi Hassan gives a refreshingly provocative perspective on the ups and downs of American and global politics. Deconstructed is a show that cuts through political drivel and media misinformation to give you a straight take on one big news story of the week. It is out every Friday, just like this pod. You can listen and subscribe at theintercept.com slash deconstructed or on any podcast platform. You know, something that I hear uh, from some people, often people of color, uh, is a response to what I'm trying to do with this show is that when I do something like that, I I often look to my experience as an addict, my experience as someone um, with bipolar disorder. Um, I also have, uh, you know, sexual assault in my past. And I kind of try to use those that, that, that suffering, that resilience to connect with the larger sufferings that are, you know, put upon people of color, um, trans people, people who have experienced you know, great historic tragic suffering, often at the hands of people who are my fellow religionists, my co-religionists, mm-hmm. and they say, "How dare you do that? They're, that your suffering, or your your attempt to like make parallel, you know, what you went through, is is arrogant and inappropriate." So I don't, I don't know if I, and I have trouble with that because I part of me says I, I feel okay, yes, there is a huge difference. But then part of me also says, but shouldn't I try to find an, an one millimeter of, of common ground just so I can know what I don't know, if that makes sense? What, do you, what is your response to that? Um, I've had some of those pretty hard conversations uh, with people along the way as well. And I, what I, I don't do by telling my own stories of, of suffering or, or victimhood is to try to set them up and say that they are any way the same as all these other all these other people experience. Instead, I just say that this happens to be my story. And um, I don't have any idea in my own heart or head, you know, about a political culture where we do anything other than set a table where we can all sit together and be human beings. And have a shared sort of common space that doesn't say we're all like or that we've all suffered the same exact things, but it says that we are we are people together 
and that somehow we have to be able to create the com- a common good. And um, it, it doesn't mean that I should be in charge of figuring out what that is. Uh, I just want to be at that table with other people and be able to tell my my story. So I'm not about either privileging my own place or I'm not, I really reject entirely the idea of all kinds of hierarchies and pyramids, but instead I'm trying to open space for us to be people together. And that that is incomplete, I'm sure, and maybe not enough in some people's minds, but it's really the best, at least, that I can do. And um, my writing contributes to creating that kind of space. So I don't tell the story in such a way of saying, hey, I'm just like you. It's not that kind of story. Instead, it's a story that says, hey, this is what has happened to me. So anybody who tells a story about injustice or suffering uh, and why that keeps you from gratitude, I do have an inkling of being able to understand why you feel the way you do. That's all that I'm saying by by telling my story. And it also, I, I do think, I, I really did want people to understand that I was not going to be a scold in this book, that I wasn't sitting from some pinnacle of moral perfection and saying to people, feel grateful and everything will be better. That's not the way this book works. I think I'm asking the same question a different way now, but it's something I think about a lot. It's one of the first things I thought of to ask you, which is that should one be grateful for privilege? Um, like, should I be grateful? Like, what do you know what I mean? Like, in this time, in, in this time where there is so much suffering, and it, I want to point out, and I've said this on my show before, but worth pointing out again. Which one of the things that's different about this time from other times is just that people like me, privileged liberal white people, are aware of suffering in a way that maybe we weren't before. ICE was still deporting people, you know, under Obama. Like trans people were still being, you know, victimized under Obama. Like there's this, all this stuff has history and we now are simply more aware of it. But it could occur to someone to be like, you know what, I am sure happy that I, that I don't have that kind of suffering. Is that seem, that seems wrong. To me, one of the points that I make in the book is that we should never be thankful for Mm. anything that causes violence, suffering, or injustice. And um, insofar as racial privilege, white privilege causes that, no. I mean, as soon as you said it, I wanted to just like shake my head and go, Anna, no. Well, I think you can understand where the question comes from. I, I really, I really can. And what I, what I argue instead is there's this little verse um, in the New Testament. It's in the book of First Thessalonians. Um, the verse is actually five eighteen. I have it memorized now. Uh, in everything, give thanks. And when I was growing up in church, we had interpreted that verse to mean for everything, give thanks. And so I can remember being in churches where a white pastor would get up in front of a group of white middle-class people and say, oh, we need to be thankful for all of our blessings. And the older I got, the Mm -hmm. less comfortable I felt with that because it almost felt like we should be thankful for our blessings. But what about the people who live five miles from here? And um it was particularly pointed a couple of years ago when I heard someone do this in a church when I knew that just down the road, there is a huge immigrant community 
where there was so much, so much uh, prejudice directed against those people and violence and lack of basic resources and all that kind of stuff. It felt horrible to sit in a room with a white pastor who got up and said, be thankful for all of our blessings. Like, I wanted to run out. Um, the verse in Thessalonians says, in, which means through all these things, give thanks. So we're never supposed to be thankful for things that contribute to the de- dehumanization and demeaning of other people. Uh, but something like privilege even though we have this and we've participated in this structure in some way, shape, or form, um, we can still learn to be grateful people within it or through it. And when we learn real gratitude, it actually helps to take down privilege because genuine gratitude is never about maintaining power over anybody. Um, genuine gratitude puts us all together being human at that table that I was mentioning um, a few minutes ago. And it creates connections between us that we didn't know existed. And we begin to see that gifts flow between us, um, that there are really truly no benefactors who are superior and no beneficiaries who are less than. But that gifts and gratefulness bring us to a place of true equality. And so, so genuine gratitude, being a thankful person within a structure of privilege or through a structure of privilege, begins to give us the eyes to see how privilege is at odds in many ways with the practice of gratitude. And I think, I wonder if it, it ties into this idea that I've had ever since I got sober, which is, I, I read some sermon, I wish I could remember who, who wrote it, um, that talked about evangelism and in the way that I I personally interpret evangelism which is to spread my good news my story yeah. not to to leave it with you right like I all I want to do is tell you my story and if you like my story follow me right mm-hmm. um and I'm going to cry <laughs> the quote is something like and I do this not in order to be saved but because I have been saved mm-hmm. that's beautiful the joy of this gift that I've been given, that I have gratitude for, that is what makes me want to, to share it with other people. And it makes me want to serve other people. And I serve others not in order to be saved, not good works, but because I have been saved, I have this energy and this, this, this desire yeah. to give to others. Yeah. The story that you're telling is, is, is very meaningful to me, too. And it's, it's very beautiful because it... It points to the truest definition of what gratitude is. Too often we have thought about gratitude, especially in communities and in politics, as a quid pro quo kind of arrangement. And that is somebody gives us a gift in order to make us do something. Uh, under the Trump administration, I, it seems like. <laughs> it's every day of the week, <laughs> sometimes several hours a day on Twitter. <laughs> we, that's, that's how we see gratitude in action in politics these days, for sure. Yeah. And um, it, it, to go to the conversation on race, as I was writing this book, and, and it, it fits in with what you're saying, it fits in with the idea of privilege and also with our political struggle right now, is that um, in 19th century America, Gratitude was used as a weapon against black people who were held in slavery. And the way it worked was that 
privileged white people who lived in a pyramid structure of economics and power uh, said to the people who were at the very bottom of that pyramid, the people who were seen as slaves, the people who were forced into slavery, they said, you should be grateful to us because we have given you clothes, food, work, and a place to live. Uh, they didn't mention that they didn't pay for the work, that the clothes were torn and ripped, that the, the places that people lived were hovels that were barely habitable and that the food was horrid. And also that they did a lot of work to make the alternative even worse. Yes. Like they were doing the thing like, you should be grateful for this because I can make it worse. Yes. And often did. And uh, on top of it, sort of the ultimate thing that that the slaveholders would say to the enslaved people was uh, not only should you be grateful for all these things, but you should be grateful for the very fact that we brought you here because we have given you Christianity. Mm. And if we had left you in Africa, well, you would just be pagans. And so we've given you the ultimate gift. And the expectation in return was that the slaves were to be thankful and that gratitude was then used as a way of reinforcing this, this hideous, horrible structure of violence and injustice. What happened with that is that most of the people who were held in slavery understood that if they didn't in some way, shape, or form say, you know, thank you in some grudging way, that it would endanger their lives or, or their families, that it would bring about a violent response. And so there were certain kinds of, you know, just grudgingly going with that system that had to be public, you know, somewhat public acts because they were in just such a terrible place. But within the community itself of the enslaved people, they had a different idea about gratitude. And that idea was, is that one woke up in the morning and despite everything, despite these horrors that were being inflicted on them, they were alive. That they had a life that there was a hope of freedom, that they themselves had embraced um, stories about faith and religion that gave them a sense of power and selfhood and meaning and humanity and dignity and worth. And so even within the system, they themselves could claim these gifts, gifts that every human being has. And it was the claiming of those gifts that empowered the enslaved community to be able to resist appropriately within the structure and then resist not so appropriately against the structure. And then finally, when you got to a place where freedom, freedom happened, um, there was a different practice of gratitude that bound together the beloved community. And Thanksgiving really is at the heart of African-American theology at the real heart of African-American ethical systems. When I was starting the book, I called up a friend of mine, a pastor in Chicago, Otis Moss, and I asked him, I said, um, where can I go and read a book 
about Thanksgiving in African-American theology, and he literally laughed, which was a really nice response for a friend of yours to have when you ask them a stupid question. Um, <laughs> he literally laughed. He said, well, there really isn't a book, but how about if you just start listening to the music? Mm. And, uh, oh, my gosh, you know, I didn't think of it myself, and it's always good to have a friend who can tell you uh just go this way. And I started listening to some of the music that he rec- recommended. And the the music of celebration within the Black community, both gospel choirs and, and also in jazz in particular, um, is richly embedded in this vision of gratitude that developed underneath the system of enforced and inflicted weaponized gratitude that the slaveholders tried to use to control these 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 people. And so the people themselves rose up. They took gratitude for themselves. It empowered them to freedom and beyond freedom. And so that's what real gratitude is. And oftentimes oppressed communities have a stronger sense of that than the communities that are choosing it to use against people as a mechanism of control. So there's another thing that you might be doing wrong besides brushing your teeth shopping. And maybe it's not so much you're doing it wrong. It's just you could be doing it better. I am someone who actually really loves clothes, like a lot. I love clothes a lot and fashion a lot, but I hate shopping. I hate the mall. And so I wind up doing a lot of online shopping, but because it's online uh, and I'm a little unsure about, you know, uh, going outside my comfort zone, I wind up with like, and, and this is literally true, I have probably between 10 and 15 sailor striped shirts because I know I like them and I know how they fit me. So I just keep buying them over and over. Stitch Fix is a solution for that. Stitch Fix is a personal stylist and personal shopper in one. You just fill out your style profile online. It doesn't take very long. And Stitch Fix will send you clothes, shoes, and accessories picked just for you, your size, your style, and your budget. And of course, what you like. Each Stitch Fix box contains five items you can try on at home. So you can see what works with your wardrobe, and you only pay for the items you keep. And sending everything back is easy if that's what you want to do. Stitch Fix covers shipping both ways for returns and exchanges, too. You know, if you like something, but maybe it's just not fitting quite right. There's no subscription required. You can get your fix monthly, quarterly, or whenever you feel like it. I do it every other month these days. Um, and Sometimes I will actually, and this is the truth, I will switch up the date it arrives so it feels like a surprise because I'm pretty forgetful. That's the nice thing about being forgetful is that often there's a lot of things that are a surprise. So get started now at stitchfix.com slash friends, and you'll also get 25% off when you keep all five items in your box. That's stitchfix.com slash friends to try Stitch Fix today. Stitchfix.com slash friends. We have to be very careful these days when we talk about evangelicals supporting Trump that it's specified to be white evangelicals because there's a lot of African-American evangelicals out there, black evangelicals, who are still participating in the kinds of communities that, that they had to participate. They've already, they mean, it's been centuries. It's always been necessary for these people. That's correct. And also for Native Americans. Yep. Um and I, I have been incredibly grateful uh, by people who are my colleagues and my friends who are from non-white communities, who are Native American, who are, are African American. And they have 
they've thanked me for taking on this project because I do present gratitude in such a different way that winds up being a real challenge um, to white people. So I'm affirming uh, the the joy and what I've learned uh, from studying this subject and from letting myself hear the voices of gratitude that came out of these other communities. And I'm not trying to appropriate it at all. That's not what's happening in the book. I've listened to those stories. I've recognized their beauty. And I also can see not every white person has liked pyramids of gratitude that weaponize gratitude. We may have benefited from it in some cases, but there are other cases where there are white people, certainly like myself, who have never felt comfortable with that, who have always known there was something wrong with it. And we didn't really have a lot of alternative language to talk about gratitude in non-hierarchical and non-power, non-privileged ways. And so for me to dive into this project at this moment in time became, I feel, one of the most important things I've ever written because it is a pathway beyond this 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 awful corrupted use of gratitude that we're seeing right now coming from political leaders and as you've pointed out several times the white evangelical community and and also it's not just white evangelicals there's a good share of blame that can go with white mainline protestants and white catholics too both of those communities also voted for Donald Trump, not quite in the same strong numbers as white evangelicals did, but they still did give a majority of their votes, thinner majorities not yeah. to Trump, but they, that's how they voted too. And you have to wonder, um, you have to really wonder, with white evangelicals, you actually hear them say it. I'm so thankful that Trump is president because he's going to restore um, us to where we belong. It's a real sense of loss that they were having of their own privilege and a loss of what they call their religious freedom. Also totally transactional. Yeah, it's very transactional. And it's not, gratitude is not a transaction. It's about reciprocality and sharing. And that's different than transaction. Reciprocality is when I receive a gift from you, um, I'm so full of of thankfulness, and I'm glad for the relationship we have that I want to give something back to you. You've given of your gift freely, and then I turn around and I want to give freely to you. And that's what genuine gratitude is. It's that freedom of giving, receiving, and re and, and giving again. Um, so that's the kind of relationship it should breed, not a transaction, right? And where you give me something in order that I do something for you. And that's why I brought up this idea of evangelism in the context of gratitude, because it's about, I feel I have such, I am so grateful for this gift that I've been given, which is to me, like, you know, a rebirth in spirit. I want to share it with other people. It's not that I want to collect other people's stuff (laughs) or collect other people like for like my, not my, you know, bedpost as it were. And the other thing I was thinking, I, I keep bringing up, uh, my 12-step program, but I think it's relevant, which is that we have a a practice or recommendation where if you're not feeling grateful, if you're feeling, uh, you know, selfish, insecure, discontent, to do an act of gratitude, to go be of service to someone. 
to, to do it to, because what you're talking about in this reciprocality, like all good math problems, it, you can turn it around. Like you can actually perform yourself into a place of gratitude. Yes, you can. And, and that's, that's beautiful. I have noticed that sometimes when I'm having a bad day, even when I'm just traveling and I'm in an airport somewhere and everyone is so harried and harassed, if you simply look around in a situation like that, you can almost always just see another human being who needs your help. And so if I'm feeling like, oh, this is awful, I'm going to be late for an appointment or I'm going to miss my flight and I get all into my own place where my anxiety is building, I will sometimes stand at the airport and just breathe deeply, look around, see if there's someone who needs help, and then go and try to help that person. And and it takes me out of my own anxiety. It gives a gift to somebody who really needs it. And there's no expected transaction there at all because I'm never going to see that person again. They're never going to see me again. It's just a gift, and it's a gift to be passed on because I've been in that position. There's been a time when somebody helped me, and I want to literally, to use that old film, you know, pass, pay it forward. And I, I actually use that exact same example with people, even making it as small a gesture as just being polite to the people behind the counter. Yes. Like, <laughs> you often need it. <laughs> just in any situation, there's always probably a, a, a place where you can be graceful. Mm-hmm. Um, where you can do a little bit of an act of grace, which will lead you to feel more gratitude. I promise it's so weird, um, but it works almost every time. I'm sure there are times when it, it your things are so bad, it, it doesn't. And it sounds like to me um, it, in your book, what you're talking about is taking that and trying to enact it on a community or even nationwide scale. Yes. To act ourselves into a place of gratitude. And in the book, I contrast two different structures of gratitude. Uh, One I refer to as debt and duty gratitude. And that's the kind that I was just describing out of 19th century America, where you, you give gifts only to get something back. And if people can't pay you back for what you've given, you've indebted them. And that whole idea, we, we actually carry that around in our language. I don't even think that I could count how many times people have said to me things like, oh, um, now I'm indebted to you, or how could I ever pay this back? And you say to someone, well, you're not expected to. And people say, what, what? But you gave me this huge gift. You're, I'm, I'm in your debt. And that structure is ultimately that structure of control. Um, the alternative structure is what we've been contrasting here, the idea of a table um, rather than a pyramid, And um, I refer to that as gift and response gratitude, where you get a gift freely and you have a free response to that. And in that free response, you you make a choice. You can choose to do something out of it, help someone else, say thank you, offer a kindness, um, see the other, see another person as fully human, um, or you can just say, oh, I'm not going to do that today. So there's a lot of freedom in a gift and response model of gratitude. Uh, Right now, our politics is riven with debt and duty. President Trump is probably a master of this idea of debt and duty gratitude. He expresses it all the time by saying things like, 
oh, I, I've done more for America than any other president. You know, your 401ks are higher than well, it, ever been before. He he cannot think in, except in terms of transactions. That's right. It's, I mean, you know, we're we're getting a raw deal. I'm going to make a deal. I'm the best. I have the best deals. <laughs> yeah. Um, with Korea, with Iran, and and like and and also he seems to think also the Nobel Peace Prize is is some kind of a reward. A reward. <laughs> <laughs> Which is interesting to contrast that with President Obama yeah. because Obama said oh, I didn't do anything and they just gave me this prize. Right. You know, and. Uh, and so, but he but, literally did get it and sort of acknowledged that he got it for existing. That's correct. <laughs> and for the amazing feat of being the first person of color ever to be elected president of the United States. Right. And so, um, it, so with uh, Trump, he really is a master of this idea of gratitude as a, as a weapon against other people. And a lot of people have commented on it in the media. You know, they do talk about Trump's demand for um, loyalty, mm-hmm. his transactionalism. And those things are all true. When I was working on a book about gratitude in the midst of all of this, I began to see it's not a random transactionalism and it's not random loyalty, but it really is tied up to his um, understanding of gratitude. And so many people have commented that he has the profile, the psychological profile of a narcissist. And that's one of the leading characteristics of a highly narcissistic personality is that they always think they've given the world everything and they absolutely have to be thanked. And so his his ideas around transactions and around loyalty and obligation are very much about gratitude. They're very much about his vision of, I've given this, and you must then thank me. And when you don't, you get attacked on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, he is actually, now that I think about it, I, th- I'm, I feel like I'm missing, I, uh, my memory's not quite catching he, times he has demanded to be thanked. Oh, uh, the mayor of Puerto Rico. That's right. He called her an ingrate. Uh, the, Colin Kaepernick, all he, the players. Correct. The UCLA basketball team right. that That's did right. not. That's thank- the one I was thinking of when I was thinking. There's a specific time that he at. They said no yeah. one thanked him. And it was like, That's it. Havenly is the most delightful way to design spaces in your home on any budget. Now, I have always thought of myself as a stylish person. So I have never really thought that I'm someone that would need a designer. I also have always thought that designers are for rich people. And I've never thought of myself as a rich person. Havenly democratizes, you know, the cost. And I have to say, you may think that styling is easy. You may think you're a stylish person. But the reason to hire a designer is so you'll get stretched a little bit about what you like and you'll wind up loving it because you know what you like, but you may not know what you love. And having someone else kind of try and see through your eyes, someone who knows what's out there as far as furnishing goes, they might know about stuff that fits your personality and your style even more than you do. So if you're someone who wants a little bit help with designing a space, it could be a nook. I have actually had help with a reading nook of mine. I've got a really cool mid-century chair and table and lamp. And now I just love spending time there. So it was a nook. So it 
hardly costs anything to get help with, hardly costs anything to do, and I love everything in it. So it can be a nook, it can be a bedroom, it can be a home office, it can be a bathroom. Their team of designers works with you online to design the living space of your dreams. They help you every step of the way using your budget and your style to shape the design you want at a price you can afford because everyone deserves a beautiful living space. Start by taking Havenly's free style quiz. There's a lot of quizzes that are free today. It's a fun way to learn your unique design style and it helps Havenly match you up with the perfect designer to put together the perfect room. Turn your Pinterest board into a reality. Try Havenly today by visiting havenly.com slash friends and get 25% off your design package. That's Havenly, H-A-V-E-N-L-Y dot com slash friends for 25% off your design package. Havenly.com slash friends. A few weeks ago, I I have been tracking these. I actually have screenshots of all the times in which Donald Trump has demanded someone thank him or called someone an ingrate. And the most recent one was, I think it was about five or six weeks ago now, when he came on Twitter one morning and just started saying, I personally cleared ISIS out of Syria and the world needs to thank me. And so he literally called the entire world ingrates for not appropriately thanking him for getting ISIS out of Syria. And I thought, wow, this is really... Are they still... Are they really... (laughs) (laughs) Are they even out? You know, I don't don't think so. Um, But it's, it's fascinating to see this sort of deep need that he has uh, Mm -hmm. for people to express thanks to him. And so that's the negative piece that Mm -hmm. we're living in right now. And so you asked me about, you know, the other piece is if that's what gratitude looks like in our public lives, we just have to get rid of it. Um, But does it have another shape? And I think it does have another shape. It has this alternative possibility of... I would actually argue... Actually, Colin Kaepernick is an example of it in in this positive form. Him using his position, his his voice, his platform to do more. Yes, like taking the gift that he was given, the, the his talent, his place. You know, he's actually probably a lot more grateful than Trump ever will be. Yes, I think that that's probably true, and. Um, it's been intriguing to see how alternative visions of gratitude have begun to pop up in different places in our cultural life. I think that I hadn't thought of Colin Kaepernick. That's a really good one. Um, One I do mention in the book is Parker Malloy's thankfulness thread. Oh, Parker, friend of the pod. Yeah, and she's, I mean, she's great at transgender activist and amazing journalist. And she's sort of my outsourced conscience in a lot of ways. (laughs) Parker, I know you're listening. She calls calls me on my bullshit a fair amount of the time. So if there's anything you need to call me on, let me know. Well, her thankfulness thread, which she writes every night since Mm -hmm. Trump has been president. And Sometimes I have looked at that thread in the evening and it has been just a hideous day. And there'll be one thing that she says that will be like, oh, you know, you could just breathe. You could just let it go. And so here's this public practice of thankfulness coming from transgender activist in this space and Twitter. That's a, 
a, a vision of an entire different kind of thankfulness. It's certainly not the Trump, you must thank me, but rather it's her looking around and thanking the universe, thanking her friends, thanking her dog, thanking all these people for the goodness that really does surround us. So Colin Kaepernick, Parker Malloy, I was shocked a couple weeks ago when Jonah Goldberg, of all people, um, I know, it's like, I'm mentioning Jonah Goldberg's name on your podcast. Parker? I know. She'll be calling any second now. Um, But he he just wrote a book called Suicide of the West. The title of which makes me cringe. I know. The title is terrible. Um, But I was listening to him talk about it on Morning Joe. the day the book. These are all words and sentences. When, when you're you're now going to turn this to somehow being about gratitude, it'll be amazing. Well, he, so he's talking about this on Morning Joe one morning, and uh, when the book first came out, and Joe Scarborough turns to him and asks him, um, "What is this? You know, what's this book about?" And Jonah Goldberg's first sentence was, "I have come to believe that the problem we're having in our politics today is a lack of gratitude." And I let out this screech in my house. My husband comes running across the the to the bedroom, says, what's going on? I said, Jonah Goldberg, liberal fascist Jonah Goldberg just said that the problem in the United States is a lack of gratitude. And I I, I thought, well, he's got my ear. So I listened to him talk and he went on to share about how... Yeah, he actually felt sorry for some of the things that he had said in recent years. There was this kind of humble repentance, which was not something one would normally expect from Jonah Goldberg. And then he went on to say that Americans have by and large lost our capacity to understand that we live in a land of giftedness and abundance. And unless we have that as the foundation of our political life, uh, democracy cannot be sustained. I I was in shock. Although I, I also do think he's talking about a very particular slice of Americans. I do too. And I have not read the book. But and now you made me want to reach out to him. Jeez, like that, that's, I, because I, I do think he's talking about, he's actually talking about Trump voters. I think so too, because he's looking at conservatives and he cares about the future of the Republican party. And he also, I think cares deeply about the philosophical future for neoconservative thought and Mm -hmm. all of that whole stream of intellectual life. But it's fascinating that he would go back to that place because I don't agree with that tradition. I, I am not intellectually part of that long conservative tradition of political thought. But what I do know is that at its origin, people like Edmund Burke and Adam Smith thought that gratitude was necessary for capitalism to function in any kind of benevolent way. And that without gratitude, it would become... It looks like it it, it does today. That's correct. It would become monstrous. And so for Goldberg to go back and say that's what it needs. so, So here I was having just written a book from the perspective of a progressive woman who is progressive in her politics and progressive theologically as a Christian person. And that's what my book is saying. My book is saying the exact same thing is the problem with our political and social life today is that we have lost our capacity to recognize abundance and gifts. 
And um, if we're hearing it from different perspectives, it 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 begins to think it begins to make me think that there there might be something going on where there's potentially some new pathways for us to at least talk and begin to exchange um, hopes and dreams for what could emerge um, post Donald Trump. At least I'll be at the same table. Yeah, at least I'll be at the same table. And I get excited by that because most people think that's hopeless right now. I really believe that gratitude can open a way for that to happen. I think that's a great place for us to end. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Coming on the show. And that is it for the show this week. As usual, shout out to the super fans who listen all the way to the end. I had in mind today to maybe give you a little bit of a treat because gratitude has been on my mind more than usual. And I think I have some big thoughts about it. But that was a long conversation with Diana and a lot to chew on. So let's just digest that, I think, uh, until next week. But do know the practice of gratitude is something that keeps me going every day. And I don't know how you want to incorporate it in your life, but I know it is absolutely something that literally keeps me alive. So thank you. Thank you for listening. And I hope you'll be back next week.